Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Well, we're doing this series um, on the genealogy of Jesus, these five unlikely heroes that are in his lineage. Matthew begins the genealogy, and I would imagine a lot of you, when you're reading through Matthew, you read through the genealogy very quickly, or not at all, perhaps, (laughs) particularly King James, because it was begat, 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 you know, and so people just tend to skim through it, but there's there's some treasures in there. And the way that Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus, he says, this is the record of the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, once upon a time. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I have truth. He didn't say, I bring truth. I teach truth. He said, I am the truth. And what Matthew says is, this is the record of the truth being born. This is the record of the truth becoming fact, of the promises of God becoming reality. And what, we've been try- what I've been trying to say to you in this series is the grace of God is shocking. And today, there's one of the most shocking stories right there, proudly displayed in the lineage of Jesus. And it says that the line of covenant, the line of promise comes through the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So we're going to go to that story today. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. We go to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 11. Um, I'm going to ask you to read out loud with me. We have about three passages here. I want you to read God's Word together. And uh, here it is. Let's read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now this is the story of the wife of Uriah. It is a story that is really centered around this event in King David's life. And King David 
in this narrative, if you sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you don't get the tone unless you study it a little bit. But the tone here is that David has turned into a madman filled with lust. He absolutely has to have this woman. He, he covets another man's wife. He ends up committing adultery with her. He steals her from her husband. He lies to her husband. And he kills the husband. He does five of the Ten Commandments in one fell sloop. He breaks... I don't know if any of you have ever matched his record. I hope not. (laughs) But five out of ten in one story. Now, why is that so significant? Well, because he's a man who is described as a man after God's own heart, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He is the writer of the majority of the Psalms. Matter of fact, one of his Psalms, and and the reason we love the Psalms is because he's not faking it. He's revealing his heart in the Psalms. He means what he says. Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. How do we explain this? Well, one of the issues that we have in our culture is that we have completely denied the existence of sin. We have denied the reality that every human being is disposed towards sin. That we have a nature that is attached to, attracted to, and hooked into sin in every generation. But what's happening, particularly the last century is the idea has come about that we're not that bad and we can educate ourselves out of our problems. So that so much so that after World War II, when President Roosevelt and all of these other people were touring uh, or finding out about the Holocaust, about the camps, and all of this, they were in disbelief that the Germans could be so cruel. They said, how can the country that produced Bach and Mozart and all of this, how can that country... It possibly be this evil. You see, there is almost always cultural bias. Almost always sort of a cultural superiority that says, we would never do something like this. And one British philosopher, he was a secular philosopher, but having seen the atrocities of World War II and the atrocities of the Holocaust, he wrote this, he said, what I saw was an intolerably shallow view of evil that permitted such atrocities. He said, by rejecting the doctrine of original sin, that every one of us has this nature that is sinful from the beginning. He said, by rejecting that, we're constantly disappointed in the behavior of human societies and human governments. what What he's saying is, whether you're on the left or you're on the right, sin nature dominates. And if you ever think that they that some political party or some governmental program is going to save us, you're always going to be disappointed. Well, let's make it a little more personal. Because the Bible here is incredibly personal. When it talks about the heroes of the faith, it never fails to show how flawed they are. Think about Abraham. Every time he's in a crisis, do you know what Abraham did? He lied. He told, and he didn't lie about himself. He lied about his wife. It's my sister. Moses, so angry, so frustrated, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. The whole purpose of his mission was to get into the promised land. But his anger disqualifies him. He's actually 
could be known as Moses the murderer. Now look at King David. Now, my professor in seminary used to say this. In the world we call Alexander the Great, he said Alexander held no candle to David. David was an amazing kind of renaissance man. He should be called David the Great. He was a writer. He was a singer. He was a musician. He was a leader. He was a warrior. He also did something that is so hard to do. He took the 12 families of Jacob. He took the 12 tribes and he united them into one nation that became stable and powerful and economically resourceful. All those things. I mean, think about it. You and I can't even unite our families at Christmas. And he got the 12 families all together into one nation and he governed them well. Matter of fact, so well, he didn't have to go to war anymore. Which leads to the problem. So the seeds of destruction, the Bible says, are in each and every one of us. And if, if you ever are that person that says, well, at least I don't do that, or I could never do that, do you really think you compare favorably to Abraham, to Moses, to David? You're totally capable of everything they did. Those seeds are in every one of us. And the moment you start comparing yourself to somebody else and say, I would never do that, is the moment you become susceptible to the very thing you say you would never do. <laughs> Think about the potential of these seeds in our lives. If they're watered, if they're allowed to be planted, if they're allowed to grow, they're like the acorn. You take that little acorn... And what comes out of it, that one little acorn, an entire tree, comes forth, an oak tree. Matter of fact, that acorn, if it's properly planted, could cover the whole earth in oak trees. What many of us have done is we allow the seeds of our destruction to be planted in our hearts, to be nourished, to be watered, to grow. Don't you realize it's a lot easier to crush an acorn than it is to cut down an oak tree? Is that not the seed of addiction? Is it not the seeds of your bondage that it starts as nothing more than some of these kind of attitudes? Self-pity. Woe is me. Nothing good ever happens for me. I give so much. Everybody else gets so much more than me. Resentment. Oh, they betrayed me again. They let me down. They disappointed me. Do you not understand that the reason David did what he did is he was jealous of Uriah because Uriah had a beautiful wife. He was envious. He started out with coveting something that wasn't his and he said, I should have that. Are you tracking with me? You understand, when you get your pride hurt, when you're easily offended, that acorn is becoming an oak tree. When your self-centeredness, particularly the idea that when you look around and you say, I don't understand why good things happen to them. I'm much more righteous than them. I don't understand why the good things happen. They have so much money. They have a better house than me. They have so many more things good than me. I am so much more loving than they are. I am a gift to God, you know. I, he is lucky to have me. And nobody says that in an unsophisticated way. But see, the seed is always a seed of deception where you just have this little self-pity, self-centeredness, resentfulness, 
My life isn't what I want it to be. Discontentment. And what it becomes is an open door for greater and greater mastery of sin in your life. Let me give you two very practical applications from this. One of the 17th century preachers that I I read whenever I can is a man by the name of John Owen. Owen said it very succinctly. He said, either you be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. Either you will kill the sin in your life or the sin in your life will kill you. You've got to realize that if you allow the acorn, you say, I'm just going to fester the self-pity a little bit. I'm just going to stay angry for a while. I'm just going to resent. I'm just going to be unforgiving for a while. Do you understand? You have given the devil a place for an oak tree of unrighteousness to grow right in your heart. Kill sin or sin kills you. Now the second thing is this. People often say to me, they're like, by the way you teach these, these heroes of the faith, these these." You know, these guys in the Old Testament and stuff, not a single one of them is a good example. I mean, we can't, I, 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 we can't tell kids, be like Abraham and lie. Be like Moses and kill people who make you mad. You know, or be like David and sleep with anybody that's beautiful. You know, you can't say that. They're, they're like, I just don't understand. These people, they just not, they're, not even, they're not good examples. And I'm like, you're, you're revealing you don't understand the Bible. See, One of the clear things, even in the Old Testament, is this. It is only the grace of God that lifts up anyone. No one is deserving. Everyone is flawed. And our God loves to work with and continually works His work of grace in the most flawed people. But the other thing is this. All the Bible is saying is not a single one of these guys could save themselves. They needed a Savior. Amen. You know, Jesus came to save you from his sin, your sins. Yep. But He also came to save David from his sins. Amen. To save Abraham from his sins. Right. Their faith looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Your faith looks backwards on an already filled promise. Hallelujah. Isn't that beautiful when you really get it? Because these guys, and this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible, it shows them warts and all. It shows that they need a Savior just as much as I did. I mean, there's something wonderful about David. He was a man after God's own heart. I love the Psalms, and yet he was a screwed up. No, he was more screwed up than me. I like that. (laughs) And yet at the same time, I see in him the same things I see in me. If I want something, I can become a madman about that. If somebody gets in my way, particularly on the Palisades Parkway, I want to run them over in Jesus' name. Not really, in Mike's name, actually. You understand what I'm saying? The Bible is very personal. It's speaking to you and to your life, and it's saying, look, it is not about becoming a better person. It's about realizing you cannot save yourself. So let's talk about, because this series is really about the women. And there's this woman right in the midst of this, and her name is Bathsheba. And it's really kind of fascinating, because the only thing that gets her in the position that she's in is her looks. You know, what, what a powerful statement right here in the Bible 
that the powerful people around her looked at her like she was a possession to be captured or to be taken. Matter of fact, the wording in the ESV is, he took her. So we don't, we don't really know anything about her own emotional reactions to why you know, she was willing for this to happen or how this happened. But, but we can kind of speculate a bit. I mean, David was the king. You know, David was the most popular man in the kingdom. He was successful. And the Holy Spirit said he was handsome because it's in the Bible. You know, and so, I mean, I don't know how you resist. Or maybe you could say he put her in a position she couldn't say no to. It's a very, very sad state of affairs that God looks at a woman as a uh, co-image of God and a man treated a woman as only having value because of her looks. And so he's willing to forego his godliness, his righteousness, and anything else because he was so enamored with the way that she looked. As a matter of fact, you see in this such flaws in David. For example, it was typical that when a king sent out his army, he went with the army and he led that army. He had gotten to a place of such self-satisfaction and lack of dependence on God because he was safe and secure and he was rich and he had his own palace that now he's sleeping all day. I guess he was an early millennium. I'm not sure. but uh, Just kidding, sorry. No, I'm not. So he sleeps all day, he gets up at night, and, uh, and he's, he's restless, and he's bored, and he goes up on his roof. And you see, his roof is taller than everybody else's roof. Now, I want you to understand something about ancient culture, and especially about that culture. Walls were about privacy. As a matter of fact, there was a cultural rule, there was a an idea that even if the wall didn't extend all the way to the ceiling, it extend, I mean, to the, to the heavens, it extended to the heavens. When I was in Africa, I learned this in a very personal way. We'd be walking down the road with some of our African brothers and pastors and stuff, and we're walking, and somebody's right over the wall from us, and the wall was no higher than this. And so you, you're walking along, and you go, oh, I know what they're doing, and... Uh, you know, you could smell it, you could hear it, you could, you could all these things. And I'm sitting there going, this guy is right here at the road, at the wall. He said, no, you have to understand, in our culture, that wall extends all the way up. We just, we just act like it's not happening. We just act like it's not there. And I'm like, I can't. I smell it, I feel it, I want out of here, you know, kind of a thing. Because if you don't grow up in that culture, you don't, you, if there's no wall, there's no wall. But to them, there's a wall. You see, and so she's not up there trying to seduce anybody. She has, in her mind, she has the idea, this is private. I'm purifying myself. I'm cleansing myself. I'm going according to the law of God up here. She's not some seductress, friends. She's doing that which she was called to do by righteousness. And so he's the voyeur. He's the intruder. And he's supposed to, when he sees that she's doing what she's doing, he's supposed to look away because the wall goes all the way to heaven. Are you, are you hearing me? I, anybody that's ever made her the, like the, the, the bad woman in this, she's not. 
She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. And the culture said the wall goes all the way up. And he's supposed to go, oh, she's doing that. Walk away. Walk away. The wall's there. But instead, he gets more and more crazy. He becomes a madman. He becomes frantic to have her. And he begins to ask the question, who is she? Now, here's what we begin to understand about Bathsheba. Some things about her. She's actually been around David her whole life. Because her father, Eliam, was one of David's first mighty men. Her father was one who left with David when Saul was after David. And they lived in the wilderness together. Eliam and, and, and 36 other men were his guard. They were loyal to him. They were so committed to David that one time David said, you know, I remember this water from a well. And he tells them where the well is and where the water is. And it's behind enemy lines. And these mighty men, a few of them go, go through the enemy line, sneak in, get him a pitcher of water and bring it all the way back just to satisfy his taste because they loved him that much. So Bathsheba is the daughter of one of his mighty men. When Bathsheba was born, her name was Bathsheba. And it was, it was basically her father saying, this is my treasure. This is my pride and joy. So she is a beloved daughter are you hearing me? Of her father. Okay? She's not just some piece of meat. She is a beloved daughter of her father. When she was bat misfed, her name was changed to reflect that he made an oath in her life. And she made an oath to Abraham to be dedicated to God. And so there's a, there's a spiritual heritage and there's a, a lineage of, of loyalty to King David. Now Uriah was also... Not just a soldier, he was a mighty man as well. He was one of the loyal followers of David as well. As a matter of fact, this guy had such character that when David tried to bribe him with food and drink and go sleep with your wife to cover up the pregnancy, Uriah said, no, I'm on mission for you, king. My men are in the fields. My general is in a tent. I can't go take pleasure in my bed. I must stay here and guard you which really pissed David off immeasurably <laughs> because his plan didn't work. He even got him drunk and he still was loyal to David. You see, the king should have had that kind of loyalty. The king is obligated to make sure he protects his subject. Not only did he kill Uriah, he killed all the men around Uriah. That's what he's not supposed to do. Do you understand? This is, this is a tragic story. There's even a worse aspect to this. Bathsheba's grandfather is a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, if you go study Ahithophel, he's one of the wisest, one of the greatest men in David's council. Ahithophel is why David was so successful. He was an awesome strategist and an amazingly wise man. And so when David destroyed Bathsheba, when he destroyed Uriah, this sin that had mastered him had now the power to destroy an entire family. Now we don't know how Bathsheba reacted to any of this. It's not in the text. But this is, this is what did play out in the story is that when Uriah was dead, she mourned him, but she only mourned him seven days. And then immediately she became the wife of David. And so you have this 
you have this woman who is caught because of her beauty in a trap of a man's craziness. And because he had the power to do it, and he didn't care about the consequences of what would happen because he did it, a whole family is destroyed and lives are destroyed. I, I just want you to see so clearly that if you are mastered by sin, it is a power of destruction. I really believe, friends, that what we see here, without the Scripture saying it, but I believe it is a spirit of lust that takes him over. And that spirit of lust, many of us have, have played with that fire. And we've allowed ourselves to be consumed by a spirit of lust, thinking it will satisfy us. No, it doesn't satisfy, it only enslaves. And so David is enslaved and his, his life is completely captured by this. It's so weird too because the scripture says he doesn't even take any notice. He takes her into his home, makes her his wife, and acts like nothing has happened. Until one day, something does happen. But even before that, there was that phrase. Did you hear that phrase? But the Lord was displeased. Well, he sends grace. He sends grace in the form of a prophet. You see, when God deals with you, he doesn't deal with you in condemnation. He deals with you in grace. This is the shocking aspect of grace. This is also the wisdom of grace. Listen to this story. So Nathan comes to David's court. You see, David wasn't just the king. He was the Supreme Court justice. Actually, he was the Supreme Court. You know, he made the judgments. And so what happens is this prophet named Nathan comes and says, Oh, king, I have a case for you. And this is the beauty and the wisdom and the effectiveness of God's grace. The, the prophet tells a parable, but he states it as if it's a case. And he says there's this rich man who had all the sheep he could possibly have. And then next to him was a poor man who had one ewe lamb. And this poor man treated the ewe lamb like it was a daughter. Treated this uh, ewe lamb in his home, fed kept him in, you know, warm and everything else. And one day, a stranger came. And you have to understand, in this land, there was a law of hospitality. If a stranger came to your door, you had to provide something for the stranger. There were minimal requirements for the stranger, or else you had failed to do the law of hospitality. And so this rich man says, I'm going to fulfill this law of hospitality, but I'm going to use the ewe lamb of this poor man and he took the lamb, killed the lamb, fed it to the stranger. As David is hearing this story, he is beginning to get enraged. He is provoked to such great wrath. He won't even hardly let Nathan finish the story before he said, As the Lord lives! That's an oath. As the Lord lives, this man shall die! And then, then as madmen often do, and, and he will give four sheep back for the one lost. Because, you see, in one way, his, his judgment, four sheep back for the one lost, that's within the Mosaic Law. You, if you take something, you have to give back more than you've taken. So that's within the Mosaic Law. But if you're not reading carefully, you'll miss this. It's a little excessive to kill somebody because they took a sheep. Right? Anybody get that? 
That's it. That's a little over the top. So what's going on here? Well, the, the scholars say this. David is so full of guilt and subconsciously so full of shame, but he's the king. And he wants to have people believe that his kingdom is righteous, that his kingdom is just. And so what he's basically saying this, in my kingdom do people flaunt the law? In my kingdom do they think I will not punish them when they are unrighteous, when they are unjust? I'm a just king. And so really what's happening, he's not just mad mad at the greedy rich man, he's mad that in his kingdom someone would think that he would tolerate such injustice. Here's the problem. The judge on on the throne is the unjust one. And so really when he says, kill him, it's his guilt rising up. Have you ever noticed that when people are guilty, they are even more reactionary to the very same things they've done. And that's what he does because he has this excessive anger that comes out at the sheep killing. He actually condemns himself because he says, as the Lord lives, such a man must die in my kingdom. And then Nathan goes, this is the most direct sermon application ever. You are the man. And at that moment, David breaks. And he says, I, I have sinned against God. And he begins to weep and he begins to repent. And if you, if you want to see one of the greatest repentance prayers ever, go to Psalm 51. It's David's repentance. It is one of the most powerful repentance prayers ever. But that's not what pardoned David. Can you... Please track with me on this. You see, when you sin, there must be atonement for your sin. Tears do not atone for anything. Feeling sorry that you did something does not atone for anything. Even if I send you to your room for the rest of your life, it does not atone for anything. Repentance is a powerful Medium, it's a powerful tool in which you finally realize what I thought was wrong or what I did was wrong. It is a waking up to the truth because, friends, if you're living a lie, you cannot defend a lie with the truth. You can only defend a lie with another lie. So when you repent, the sweetness of repentance is you get out of the lying and you get into the truth where the truth can set you free. But repentance does nothing to atone. Now, if you don't believe me, think about this. What has happened? Someone is dead. Oh, I'm sorry they're dead. Does not bring them back. A woman has been violated. Her life has been thrown upside down saying, Oh, I'm sorry I did that. It was a momentary lapse in my uh, madness or craziness. Does not restore what you took from her. There has to be a sacrifice that actually is acceptable to atone for what we've done. David is tearful. David is broken. David is repentant. But David is not saved by any of those things. He is saved by his great-great-grandson who was born in Bethlehem. Who went to the cross for David and goes to the cross for you. See, there had to be a perfect sacrifice. There had to be a sinless 
sacrifice. Let me tell you something. Killing a lamb doesn't bring a man back from the dead. Killing a, a, a bull or a goat or giving money doesn't make up for sexual immorality. Only the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can save David or save you from the sins that condemn you. But the beauty of all of this to me is how the Gospel and how grace is so shrewd, so beautifully expressed. You see, many of us, our problem is that when we go and confront people, we immediately start with, you are the man. You're the liar. You're the thief. You're the, you're the betrayer. You're this. You're that. We go with that. And guess what happens when you do that? Self-defense comes up. Condemnation produces self-justification. If you don't understand what I've gone through. You don't understand my life. You don't understand what I've been through. All this kind of stuff. What does Nathan do? He disarms David. He disarms his defenses so that David really is able to receive. Why is that? Because God is more interested in conviction than condemnation. He has no interest in regret. He has a longing for you to repent. Because when you repent, you are converted from sinner into saint. Come on, only, only Ramona gets that? Come on, are you hearing me? Do you understand? Many of you resist repentance. Repentance is the sweetest thing in the spiritual life because the day you stop living a lie is the day you get to get free. Amen. Hallelujah. God is all about converting you into the best version of you you could ever be because His desire is to pardon you, not to punish you. Now, I want you to... I mean, there's some great truths in this, but I want you to think through how difficult it is to get through people's defense mechanism and why God uses grace instead of punishment. Listen, when people are in power and they're leaders, and, and many of you, I look around the room, your leaders in your area, your teachers, your, your family leaders, your, your business leaders, all of those things, anybody who's in leadership, cannot live that life without sacrificing. You cannot be a leader and not have criticism. I mean, even in David's day, they had a website, Impeach King David, you know? They were, get rid of David, kind of, web, dot org, you know? Of course, they didn't have a website, all right? But you know what I'm saying. There were always critical people. There were always people giving him a hard time. He never had a day in which he wasn't sacrificing. And so what happened to David is this. When temptation came, he said, I deserve this. You see, once you begin to say, wow, I just give so much. Oh man, you know, I've sacrificed so much. I just deserve this one thing, this one acorn. It's just an acorn. You know, not realizing it's going to become an oak tree in your life. And that's what happens with so many leaders. Do you understand? Leadership leaves you open to three temptations. Sex, Control and money. And David fell for two of the three in one story. He fell for both and he destroyed his leadership. And he actually, this, this is so significant, is that from this moment on in David's reign, there was nothing but chaos. And it all stemmed around this. And worse than that, there was personal tragedy. Because his son 
was born with an incurable disease, and it was connected. God himself said, this is connected to your sin. And so not only did David and Bathsheba have this kind of rocky start, but the thing that they were trying to cover up became a deep, deep pain in their life, a mourning, a sorrow. And, and when you realize this, why does he do this? Why does he cover this up? Why, instead of going to his general and saying, killing your wife, why didn't he go to the Lord? Because when you have given in to temptation, often you think you have to solve it. So here's what he, and people in power do this all the time. They say, look, I'm going to cover this up for the good of the nation. I'm irreplaceable. You know, the economy's going to tank if they find out that I've been fooling around. Or, or they, he says, you know, my critics will be able to dethrone me. Or, or he could even say, we are a godly country, and if they find out I've been ungodly, it will destroy the faith of the, in God of the people. You understand? Cover-ups sound so reasonable when sin is still in the master. It's only when you realize, I mean, think about it. God wants to convict him so he can change. God wants to convert him so that he can become the man he was destined to become. But his cover-up is saying, I'm, I'm good enough as it is. And even his taking of this sin and succumbing to this temptation is basically him saying, look, you, know, you don't have any idea how much I do for everybody. I deserve this. I des-. And if you haven't said that before, I would be very proud of you, but I, don't, I think you've said it. I think many of us have said it. Do you understand? Satan knows when you've given the most is when you're often the most vulnerable. And can I say to you today again, either kill sin or sin will be killing you. Do not go to somebody to help you cover it up. Go to God and He will redeem it. He will abundantly pardon. You know what? Are you tracking with me on this? So, David was given by Nathan a full pardon. Not because David could atone, but because of the way our God is. I love this. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. See, the confession itself does not atone, but the confession puts you in touch with the atonement. See, the, the, whole, the whole beauty of that statement is that God is just when He forgives you. That is just mind-blowing and shocking because really, I, and when I think about it, I think, isn't that Him being merciful? Isn't that Him being gracious? No. What He has done is He has tied your pardon, your forgiveness, your redemption to His justice now. For He has accepted the payment that Jesus made and He will never ask for a second payment from you. So what he is asking is that you recognize you need the payment. That you recognize that you have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. Just like he asked David to do the same. You see, if David had justified himself, if David had covered up anymore, if he had, if he had, if he had you know, somehow protected himself in that moment, then he would never have attached his life to the finished work of his great-great-grandson who was born in Bethlehem. But because David in that moment connected by his confession, by his repentance to an atonement he could not make for himself, David could live the rest of his life knowing he was forgiven. The same is true for you. 
I know people, I meet people all the time, they go, I believe in God, I'm, I'm sorry about my sins, and you know what? They're not saved. They have a nice belief in God, I'm glad for them. I'm glad they're sorry about their sins, at least they have some humility. But let me tell you, friends, being sorry for your sin does nothing. Unless being sorry for your sin leads you to the cross. Leads you to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to have to talk fast because I see Jerry over there. <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to hear the, re- the end of the story for Bathsheba. Okay? So we don't know how she reacted to all of this. She became a beloved wife of David. Um, it's pretty obvious to me from the Scriptures that she received Nathan's prophetic word just as deeply as David did. For when... David came to her again as husband and wife. They had another child. Now, Nathan and David named that child. His name was Solomon. And Nathan gave him the name Jedidiah. So his name was Solomon Jedidiah. And I know that Bathsheba had gone deep with the Lord in this because Nathan became Solomon's tutor. Solomon became one of the wisest, one of the most famous kings that has ever lived. As a matter of fact, not only do we still study Solomon's wisdom, but I was listening to the 60s channel on Sirius Radio, and the birds were singing Solomon, turn, turn, turn. So, so here after almost 3,000 years, Solomon is still around. And guess why? Because Bathsheba led her son to be trained in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But that's, not, that's pretty good, that one. Okay? So the line of Joseph comes through Solomon. So Jesus' legal ancestry is through David with Bathsheba through Solomon all the way to Joseph. But there is more to the story. God didn't leave Bathsheba as somebody who's just a, a passive player in this story. As a matter of fact, David and Bathsheba had a third son. And this third son... They allowed, which is kind of unusual, but they allowed that Bathsheba named him. And do you know what his name was? Nathan. She named him after the prophet. Do you understand what that shows of her heart? Here is the man who prophesied to her, you have brought shame on your your family. You have brought a curse on your family. Your own son is going to die because of the sin in your life. And instead of rejecting those hard words, instead of you know, defending herself against those hard words, instead, she brought him into her family. She brought him into the lives of her children. And when she had the opportunity to name her third son, she named him after the prophet. But that's not the end of that story. If you go to Luke chapter 3, and you find there the genealogy, not of Joseph, but the genealogy of Mary. Mary sits down with Luke, who was a historian, and lays out her genealogy. And guess who her great-great-great-grandfather is? Nathan. So here's Bath... I get chills when I say this. Here's Bathsheba, whose life has been turned topsy-turvy, who's got you know, unbelievable grief and pain in her life. And yet, because of, of, of this faithfulness, of this covenantal love that she kept for God in the midst of it all. Her son Solomon is the legal 
ancestor of Jesus and her son Nathan is the real DNA of Mother Mary. God can take any mess if you will just let Him. If you'll let Him, He can take even when people have abused you, used you, betrayed you, destroyed you, if you will not give in to the seeds of self-pity and resentment and the seeds of self-centeredness and all of these things, and you'll say, God, you must, I need you to redeem what others have stolen from me. I mean, what a thing. He took Bathsheba, and she's the mother to both sides of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me? Are you with me today? Isn't that an amazing story? I tell you, the reason I wanted to go in detail with these stories is I love the Bible. But you have to study it. You can't just read it. You have to go a little bit deeper. Probably many of you didn't know these things about Bathsheba, and Hollywood is never going to show these parts. They're only going to show the sex parts. You know? And they're only going to show her as beautiful. That's not how God saw Bathsheba. Men might have seen her as someone to possess, but God saw her as someone to redeem. Now, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I want you to... You can use your righteous finger if you want. It doesn't matter. You can push at them. I don't care. But you say to them this. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do it again. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Don't forget that one. That's a great point from this. It's a lot easier to crush an acorn than it is to get rid of the roots of an oak tree. That's what addiction is. It's an oak tree with deep roots in your soul. You've got to get it when it's an acorn. Mm. I feel the presence of the Lord. I know I, I have to let you go, but I feel His presence very sweetly. And I, here's what I like to do. I feel like the Lord has asked me as, as your pastor to speak protection over you. Protection over the temptation when you get tired. Notice, what, when did David give in? When he was bored, when he was restless, when he had nothing to do, when he should have been somewhere else, and instead he was where he shouldn't have been. He violated his own culture by looking over walls he shouldn't have looked at. I just feel like the Lord is saying for me, I, what I, I see is like the shepherd extends his staff for the sheep. Uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I extend the staff of the shepherd over each of your lives. I draw a circle and a boundary. Satan, you're a tempter. We bind you as the tempter. You're a, you're a liar, a deceiver. We bind you as a liar and deceiver. You will not keep our people from repentance. You will not keep them from confessing their sins. You will not leave them in manic or madness states of lust or greed or anxiety, or anger, or frustration, or any of those things, I bind that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I declare that these are the sheep, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have no place among us. I call forth protection against every demonic assignment and scheme, against every person, every family in this room, and declare freedom. The truth sets you free. We, we declare truth over lies. We declare 
the light over the darkness, and the kingdom of God is advancing through each of us in our lives. Now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.